You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Father in heaven, I'm reminded this morning of Revelation chapters 5 and 6. When you opened up heaven and you called John the Apostle up to see from your perspective human history, and you gave him a heavenly vision of the world. I'm reminded that in that moment he wept because for a moment he did not see anyone who was able to take the scroll and to snap its seals. But Father, then you, you revealed to John the lion of the tribe of Judah, who alone was worthy to take the book and to snap its seals of human history because he and he alone died on the cross and resurrected from the dead to absorb the wrath of God for your people. And Father, we're reminded from that text that you also show, John, that the people of God who suffer on earth at the hands of the evil Roman Empire, that they would in fact be saved from your wrath and they would in fact have justice, divine justice on their behalf when Jesus returned from heaven to earth. And so, Father, in that vision and revelation, you exhort John the Apostle to exhort your people on earth to persevere in suffering until the end so that we would be saved. And Father, this morning we come to a text in Matthew chapter 24 where you, through the lips of Jesus, promise that you will return a second time in the coming of Jesus to judge the world and to save your people. He also promised that you will judge Jerusalem within history. We ask you this morning, Father, to help us, therefore, be alert, to be ready, because we don't know when Jesus Christ will return. So use your word this morning to help your people be faithful so that we would be saved. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Jamal preached from Matthew chapter 23. In that chapter, Jesus preaches against, preaches judgment against the Pharisees and scribes because they rejected him as the Jewish Messiah. This morning's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 24. In my view, chapters 24 and 25 should be read together. Because both of these chapters are a call for us to be ready, to be faithful to Jesus, because he will return a second time to bring judgment and wrath against those who reject him and to save those of us who follow him until the end. So be faithful. Because we do not, brothers and sisters, know when Jesus will return. This morning's text, Matthew 24, in my view, is a very difficult text. There is much I could say from this text this morning. There is much that needs to be said that is beyond my capacity even to say. In my view, I think this text basically teaches three truths. Number one, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. 
and the temple at the hands of the Romans, which actually happened in 70 A.D. From the year 66 to 70 A.D., there was a war between the Romans and the Jews. The Romans invaded. They conquered Jerusalem. They sacked the temple. From Jesus' perspective, when he first told this story, Rome's invasion was future. From our perspective, we look back on that prediction and we see that it's already happened. Second truth is Jesus predicts his second coming when he will return to judge the world. And third, Jesus exhorts us to be alert, to be ready for his return because we do not know when he is coming, but we do know that he is coming soon. First truth, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans. And he does so as he talks about his second coming. Now, I want to say another word here by way of introduction. And don't worry, this will not be as long as the introduction two weeks ago. But by way of introduction, there's another word you need to hear about this chapter before we walk through the text. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is answering two specific questions. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed? And number two, what will be the sign of his second coming? Jesus tells his disciples that signs will precede the destruction of Jerusalem. Certain events, in other words, will precede the destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming. And the destruction of Jerusalem will also precede his second coming. However, he wants them to understand that Jerusalem's destruction is not the end of the age. The end of the age will occur when he returns a second time after the resurrection from heaven to earth to judge the world. So remember, as we, as we walk through Matthew 24, Jesus is answering those two specific questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And what is the sign of your second coming? So if you notice, in verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus, he leaves the temple. His disciples come to him, and they point out to him the buildings of the temple. In all likelihood, point out to him the splendor of those buildings. But Jesus answered them and said, You see all these things? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now you talk about a killjoy, right? This temple is the second temple. And it's much more glorious than the one that we see constructed in the Old Testament. Herod was a horrible king, we know, from history. But one of the good things that King Herod did was he added some splendor to the temple. He was famous in part for his building programs. And the disciples point out to Jesus the splendor of the temple, the glory of the temple. And Jesus responds and says, there's coming a day when the temple will be destroyed. Now the disciples, as good students, they seek him out and they ask him to explain what he means. So notice in chapter 24, verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives with the, with the temple in the background, or the foreground, he sits on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to explain to them privately. As they ask, they say, tell us. Now notice the questions. They say, tell us, when will these things be? 
Though these things refer to the destruction of the temple. When will the temple be destroyed? Second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, this is a very important text here. The geography of this question is utterly important. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. If you read Zechariah 14, in Zechariah 14, the prophet says that that on the day of the Lord, when he comes in judgment, he will place his feet on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is the coming of the day of the Lord. Jesus as Yahweh in the flesh. He goes to the Mount of Olives. And he does what? He pronounces judgment that is to come on Jerusalem and upon the world. So he begins to explain to them when such judgment will take place. And he tells them, verse 4, as he begins to talk about Jerusalem's destruction, he tells them, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, all right, this, this is hard, okay? So one of the things that Jesus does in this passage that is difficult, as I said earlier, is he talks about Jerusalem's judgment within history in the same context as he talks about the future coming of judgment at the end of history. And he doesn't always clearly tell us when he's switching from one event to the next. So I think what he's doing here in this verse is he's saying, people will try to deceive you before the destruction of Jerusalem. False Christ will come before the destruction of Jerusalem. But don't worry, that is not the end of the age. These events that will take place within history prior to Jerusalem's fall is not the end of the age. It's not the moment when God will judge the world in my second coming. But there must precede the second coming. There must be events that precede the second coming. And the destruction of Jerusalem. So he says in verse 7, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Another way of talking about wars. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But let me just say, they're not the end. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our son, and there were some events that preceded that climactic moment in history when my beautiful son was born. And one of those events was there were some pains that took place prior to the delivery. And there were some pains that took place in the delivery room. But the birth pains that she was experiencing signaled to us that the climactic moment of his birth is coming. And then suddenly he was born. So Jesus is saying to us and to these disciples, here are events that must take place within history that precede Jerusalem's destruction. Continues and he says, Verse 9, there would be, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, hear this very carefully. This is one of those teaching sermons, okay? I have some practical application in the end, but right now, we've got to think carefully about the text. He's not talking about a time of tribulation when the church is gone. He's talking about tribulation that takes place on earth while the church and while the people of God are on the earth. He's talking about suffering that they would experience after his resurrection, before his second coming. 
And he identifies that suffering as a great tribulation. Tribulation that begins at the first advent and continues until the second advent at the first coming and continues to the second coming. In between the first coming and the second coming, there's a lot of suffering that the people of God will experience on earth before Jesus returns. And in that context, before Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he tells them, he says, people will put you to death. You will be hated for my namesake. Just read Acts. As the gospel is penetrating the ancient Mediterranean world and exploding throughout the Roman Empire by the power of the Spirit, it does so by means of massive suffering. Apostles are arrested, they're beaten. Early on in the book of Acts, an apostle is murdered. And Jesus tells them that these events will precede, will precede the destruction that he's predicting. And then he says this. Notice he says in verse, in verse 11, or verse 10 rather, that the people will betray you. Many will fall away and they'll hate one another. Many will profess faith in Christ, but when the going gets tough, those very people who profess faith in Christ will turn against those who profess faith in Christ. They'll hate one another. By the way, does that sound familiar today? (laughs) You have so-called Christians acting like a bunch of illegitimate children. how they talk to one another on social media or in the church. Further, verse 11, Jesus says, there'll be many false prophets. They will rise and lead many astray. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But look at verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that mean? The one who follows Jesus and who perseveres through suffering in history until the end of the age, that person will be saved from the coming judgment. That's what he's saying. Not the judgment of Jerusalem. There's no promise that the disciples would be spared from Rome's wrath in the first century. There is a promise that all the people of God who persevere suffering on earth will be saved from God's wrath at the end of history. And then he says in verse 14, in the gospel of the kingdom will be be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So so here's again, another another hard verse. I love it when I get hard text to preach, when it's my turn to preach. I think what he's saying is this. He's again pointing to the end of the world now. And he's saying the gospel will be preached to all the nations when that happens, we don't know when that will happen. But when that happens, when every elect person hears the gospel and responds to the gospel, then the end of the age will come. And here's a word, brothers and sisters, that could come today. <laughs> His basic point here is to these disciples, the end is not when Rome invades Jerusalem, that's a temporal judgment. Now, he's going to speak more specifically in verse 15 about Jerusalem's destruction. Look at verse 15. Y'all still with me? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of the prophet Daniel, by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, let's stop right there. It's very important. He's appealing to Daniel 9, verse 27, and some other verses in Daniel. In Daniel's Old Testament prophecy, 
the abomination of desolation refers to a Gentile tyrant who invaded the second temple and he sacked it. And that's called the abomination of desolation. That happened in the second century BC. And Jesus appeals to Daniel's verse in order to highlight a second abomination of desolation. That moment when the Romans invade, another Gentile nation invades. In 70 AD, when Titus Vespasian made his way into Jerusalem, he sacked the temple, and the last defiant act in that destruction was the the temple was destroyed, yes, but Titus, he defiled the temple. He desecrated it by by his presence. So Jesus is pointing them to what? He's pointing them to that moment when the Romans invade and they sack the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. We know from history, Josephus, the most important historical source for the New Testament, apart from the New Testament itself. Josephus lived from 37 AD to 100 AD. He tells us about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, he has a different interpretation of that destruction from what Jesus is offering here. But my point is, he was an eyewitness, and he explains to us that that event, it happened, and Jesus predicts that it happens, and then it happens. And he talks about the Rome the Romans' invasions, and he talks about Titus's desecration. And notice what Jesus says then. He says, when you see that abomination of desolation, in other words, when you see the Romans invade Jerusalem, you all get out of Dodge. He says, Verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The mountains in in ancient Judea was a place of refuge from their enemies in times of war. And he says, when you see this, disciples, when you see the Romans invade, flee to, to the mountains. Don't go fight them. There's a word for us today. there's any time to be a Christian nationalist, here it is. Y'all feel me this morning? But he doesn't say take up arms and go fight in the name of Jesus against these Gentile invaders. He says flee. Y'all hear me this morning? Let those, verse 17, who who are on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. In other words, don't continue with your normal rhythms of life when you see the Romans invade. Leave. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea. The Romans, brothers and sisters, they knew how to kill people. And this small motley crew of Christian disciples had no chance of waging an earthly war against the Romans. (laughs) He said, leave. And then he says also, he says, verse 18, uh, verse 19, and alas, for women, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, alas, why alas? Alas because, or woe because, it is hard to flee persecution when you're pregnant when you're nursing children, just ask refugees, right? Who flee dictatorship or tyrants with their families and just ask them how difficult it is to walk miles and to travel on earth and sea to get to a place of refuge. It is difficult And he says, pray that your flight might not be in winter. In first century Judea, winter was the rainy season. There could be floods. And those fleeing persecution had no chance to withstand that persecution with good weather. But it was even more difficult without good weather. Floods would stop them in their tracks. 
And also pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. The Sabbath things shut down. There's a story in Jewish tradition that talks about numerous Jews who were slaughtered by Gentile invaders because they refused to fight on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, pray that your flight from the Romans doesn't happen in winter and pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. And here's why, verse 21, because there would be great tribulation. Now again, hear me, the great tribulation is happening within history. It is happening on earth. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, they're on earth. And it's happening as these nations and false teachers and as these earthquakes are happening and as the Romans are invading. This is a great tribulation, but the tribulation of the Romans invading Jerusalem is greater than anything Judea had ever seen. From Jesus' perspective. And he says it's so bad, verse 22, if those days were not cut short, not even the elect would be saved. That is, if God did not intervene and put a limit to how severe the judgment would come by means of the Romans, then those whom he had chosen to be saved from his wrath in the future would be difficult. So the first truth is, Jesus predicts the judgment of Jerusalem. And that happened within history. We look back on that now as Christians. From 66 to 70 AD, there was a war between the Romans and the Jews, and the Jews lost that war. And there were Christians, alive, early Christians who witnessed that war and the exhortation to those Christians here is, get out of town when you see that taking place. Second truth. Jesus predicts his second coming when he will return a second time to judge the world. He promises to return and judge the world and save his people. Notice in verse 23. Jesus says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there is he, he is, do not believe. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even those whom God has chosen to be saved, if it were possible, and it's not ultimately possible for the elect to, be, to become apostates. It's not possible for elects, for those who are elect to become apostates and to fall away from Jesus and suffer eternal judgment. But if it were possible, Jesus says, they would deceive even the elect. See, I tell you beforehand, verse 25, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner, inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What does that mean? That means don't listen to foolish predictions about when Jesus will return. We don't know when he will return, but he certainly will return. And there are events, there are events, Jesus says, that will precede his coming. And he says, I'm telling you this beforehand so that you would not be deceived. When some tele-evangelist says, if you don't vote this way, if you don't vote that way, if you don't live this way, or, or give me a $100, then you're going to miss out on a blessing when Jesus returns. He's saying to you, don't listen to that nonsense. We don't know when he's going to return. But when he does return, notice what it says, verse 27, or verse 28, when he does return, you'll know it. How will you know it? Because you'll see it. 
Just as those vultures see that dead corpse and swarm all around it, so you will see the coming of the Son of Man. There will be no guesswork, baby, when he comes back. You don't need any cute, magical charts to try to predict when he's coming back. When he comes back, you'll know it. Because you'll see him when he comes back. Notice in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now again, this is another hard verse. By immediately here, I think Jesus means soon. That is, soon after Jerusalem is destroyed, at some point soon after that, Jesus is going to come back. This year, or this month, makes 21 years ago, or 20 years ago, that I proposed to my wife. I proposed to her on Valentine's Day. <clears throat> I tried to do it in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. So you already know it was a disaster. <laughs> but we're still married almost for 20 years. Praise God. But we were engaged in February... And we were married in June. And when people ask me, when are you getting married? My response was, we have to wait until June. <laughs> it's such a long time away. My bones, my body is aching to be married to this woman. But brothers and sisters, June was soon. Soon after Jerusalem's destruction, the end of the world will come. One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. Immediately, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Now, Jesus is using apocalyptic language here, basically exaggerated speech that you find prophets using when they talk about God's judgment upon the world. And he's using language from Isaiah, where Isaiah is pronouncing an oracle of judgment against the nations. And Jesus is saying, after the tribulation suffered in those days, at some point in history after that, I'm, I'm going to return. Notice what he says. He says, then, verse 30, then, you'll, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What's the sign of the Son of Man? It's Jesus Christ coming, Revelation 19, as a rider on a white horse, triumphantly to fight for the people of God. It's him coming with the sword out of his mouth and his robe dipped in blood and the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his robe and he's coming to judge sin the devil and every enemy of the people of God and everyone who rejects him and he's coming to save us who follow him until the end from his wrath amen amen, amen. even babies will cry out in praise <laughs> y'all hear that in the back y'all don't need to learn from that child if we don't say amen, babies will say amen, and rocks will cry out amen. Now, he says the end is coming, but he reiterates you don't know when it's coming. You don't know when the end is near. So he says, when it does happen, you'll see it. And all the tribes, verse 30, of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Again, quoting Zechariah here. Why will they mourn? They will mourn because they see the Son of Man. Some will mourn because they know their fate is wrath. Some will mourn because they know their fate is life. 
when he wipes every tear away for those who followed him and he brings wrath upon those who did not follow him, but rather sought to destroy the people of God. I don't need some false prophet telling me when Jesus is coming back. When he comes, we'll know it. Every eye will see him. And some people, we know when they see him, will be caught off guard. Therefore, thirdly, Jesus says, be ready. Be alert. Because we do not know when Jesus will return. So if you notice in verse 36, he says, according to that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I think Jesus here speaking as the God-man. When he was on earth, he willingly chose to limit himself in his humanity with respect to certain things. For example, he could not be in Samaria and Judea at the same time because he was a man. He could do a miracle in one location while he was standing in another location because he's God. But he voluntarily chose to limit himself because he's a man. So he hungers, he thirsts, he sleeps, he cries. The basic point I think Jesus wants us to gather from this statement is, is one that I've already emphasized. No one knows when he will return, but when he returns, then you'll know it. But be ready. In other words, because we don't know when he will return, we need to be alert. We need to be faithful to follow him. And so he says, verse 37 as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What was happening in the days of Noah? People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were living their lives. They were fornicating, doing all sorts of things. Not all bad, but there were some bad things. That's why you get the flood, right? Genesis chapter 6 and 7. But when they least expected it in one moment of judgment, the Lord brought a tsunami of judgment upon those who refused to listen to Noah and get on that ark. In other words, they were caught off guard. They weren't ready. And Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in your day when he returns. People will not be ready. There will be people who will be toiling the ground. A person will be taken. Another one will be left. Therefore, verse 42, stay alert Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he has sovereign power to know everything that you are doing in the darkness and in the light. And if you're not following Jesus faithfully today, brothers and sisters, you are not ready to meet him in judgment. Don't play games with Jesus Christ. He is coming in judgment. Here's some application for very quickly. Number one, repent. Turn from your sin today and faithfully follow Jesus Christ until the end of your life 
For until you die, until he comes back, this is what it means for us to be alert and ready to stand before King Jesus in the day of judgment. If you are not saved today, if you are not a Christian, you are not ready. You're not. And the invitation for you this morning is to turn from your sin To believe by faith that God offered Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin and to absorb God's wrath for your sin and that he raised him from the dead for your sin. Give your life to Jesus today so that you can be ready to stand before him in judgment. He is not coming as a lamb the second time. He is coming as a lion the second time. If you are professing Jesus today, but you've become spiritually tired. It's easy to become spiritually tired. I get spiritually tired. It's hard, isn't it? A global pandemic. There's so much chaos in our country and in the world. A lot of Christians are frankly devouring each other. Look no different from the world. It's difficult. We can't gather the way we want to gather. Our mental health is taking a toll because of this pandemic. And suffering seems to be compounded because of these realities. But if you're becoming spiritually tired and you feel like letting go of Jesus because it's too difficult, accept the invitation this morning. Accept the invitation to Bring your brokenness to Christ. To have fellowship with him in his word. To have fellowship with him in prayer. Bring your, your pain to Jesus. Wake up from your spiritual stupor. Wake up from your spiritual lethargy. Strengthen your grip on Jesus and the power of the spirit. Reach out to the people of God. So that you will be ready, amen, to meet your king. Second, brothers and sisters, because Jesus will return to pour out wrath upon our enemies, we are then freed up to love our enemies. Y'all hear me this morning? This is a very important word. If you believe with all of your bones that you serve a sovereign God, a sovereign king, who will come triumphantly to judge the living and the dead, and who will at the end of history make all wrongs right, if you believe that about your God, that he will give every guilty person who rejects him and afflicts you with pain what they deserve, then you will be freed up to love your enemies. Because you believe that only God can judge rightly, so you're freed up to entrust your enemies to God. You're freed up to avoid slanderous behavior on social media or in the workplace. You're freed up from exploiting or manipulating things or lying on people to get what you think you deserve. You're freed up to trust your sovereign God to vindicate you in the day of judgment and to judge your enemies rightly. Now, I want to clarify this because there are some who will try to use what I've just said as a reason why we should not pursue justice. We are called in Matthew, the very text Pastor Jamal preached last week, to pursue justice and love and mercy. If someone breaks into my home and tries to harm my family, I'm doing everything I can to protect my family and I will prosecute in the court of law to pursue justice for my family. 
We are called upon to love those who experience injustice, to help them be alleviated from their suffering. We are called upon to help the oppressed and the marginalized. We are called upon not to turn a blind eye toward injustice. We should never use God's attribute of perfect justice to perpetuate injustice. Amen? It should be a motivation to pursue justice. And by justice, I mean doing what is right. But here's my point. My point is, because I believe and you believe that God will make all things right at the end of history and perfectly judge our enemies, we are freed up to show love and mercy and pursue justice even for those who don't extend mercy or justice to us. And one of the best ways you can love your enemies is maybe ignore them on social media. Don't take the bait. Just because they tell your mama jokes on you, don't tell your mama jokes on them. Do y'all still say your mama? <laughs> I'm a product of the 90s. <laughs> Just because they try to lie and destroy your reputation and are successful at trying to do that, doesn't mean you should do the same to them. But you should entrust them to God, who is able to judge rightly. Oh, there's a time and a place to defend yourselves. But on social media? <laughs> really? There's a time and a place to, to use the court of law to vindicate yourself. And that's good and right. My point is, what if the legal system gives you no justice? You're still called upon to love your enemies. And that is difficult. I don't say that to you today as someone who has that figured out. One of my spiritual gifts is holding grudges. That's not really a spiritual gift, all right? See, right now someone's getting ready to write a blog uh, to, to say that I think <laughs> grudges are a spiritual gift. It's a joke. This is difficult. But when Jesus is hanging from the cross and he looks at those people who crucified him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what you do. They, they know, know not what they do. Peter says when Jesus is hanging from the cross, he entrusts himself to God. He does not insult people. When he's insulted, he does not revile people when he reviles, when they revile him. He entrusts himself to God who is able to judge rightly. If you believe with all of your might that Jesus is going to return and bring about perfect justice, you are freed up to love your enemies, not hate them. No, you won't be friends with everybody. No, you will not have coffee with everybody, especially not now, right? but you will not retaliate with evil. That's what it means to love your enemies. Don't retaliate with evil. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, right? And finally, brothers and sisters, beware of false teachers. You can tell a false teacher by what they say and also by how they live. There are false teachers who sound good, but they live like the devil. There are false teachers who might agree with the doctrine that you believe, but they live like the devil. Beware of them. You can spot a false teacher by his character or her character and her doctrine or his doctrine. And beware. You're called upon not to be seduced by whatever tickles your fancy. You're called upon to be faithful to Jesus until the end. Now, you have pastors here. We're not perfect. But we strive with all that is in us, with God's help, to be faithful to his word. 
And some of y'all need to learn how to trust your pastors instead of the next podcast. Or the next blog. You need to submit yourself to pastors who love you in this church and community group leaders who love you in this church because you know if they're walking with Jesus or not. You don't know it perfectly. But if you spend enough time with your pastors in this church and getting to know your pastors and other members of this church, you can get a sense of how we're living our lives. Again, we can't know that perfectly. But you're more likely to detect a false teacher in your midst than on the internet. And you're called upon to be faithful to Jesus and follow your pastors only insofar as we're following God's word. Amen? And teaching his word. So brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming soon. To judge the living and the dead and to save his people from his wrath and to judge their enemies. Therefore, be ready for the coming of the Lord and, and live your lives believing by faith that Jesus will vindicate you in the end. Even if there's no vindication in this life, he will vindicate you in the end if you find yourself faithful in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be ready for the coming of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to the moment in our service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You have some juice and a wafer at your seat. This moment is a moment for believers, for those of us who are following Jesus Christ faithfully. If you're not a Christian this morning, hear me carefully. If you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. But if you turn from your sins and give your lives to Jesus Christ by faith, there are many here who would love to talk to you about what it would mean for you in the future to take the Lord's Supper. But today, if you're not trusting in Christ, this is not for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated this meal and he broke some bread. He said, this bread represents my broken body. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he celebrated this meal by sharing some wine. And he says, this wine represents the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance for me. Take and drink. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.